Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Greg Store. The justices were busy this week, hearing five cases and issuing four opinions. That brought the total number of opinions in argued cases to 13, with a whopping 46 left to go before the end of the term. The justices will take the bench for the first arguments next week, and we're going to preview one of those cases with a guest. But uh, first, let's talk about some of the work that happened off the bench and on the court's shadow docket. Uh, Kimberly, can you give us an update on the abortion ruling that worked its way up to the justices last week? Sure. So David and I talked about this last week on our podcast where we left off. The justices had put on hold a Texas judge's ruling effectively halting the use of methapristone for early stage abortions. The Biden administration had appealed that ruling to the Fifth Circuit, which pulled back a little bit on the Texas ruling, but left in place parts of the ruling that made the drug more difficult to get. So the administration went to SCOTUS. And as we've seen in other cases, Justice Alito, who is the circuit justice for emergency appeals coming out of the Fifth Circuit. Justice Alito put what's known as an administrative stay in place. That is a temporary stay that's meant to preserve the status quo here, allowing the drug to be used the way it had been before the Texas court's ruling. So the stay is intended to sort of lower the stakes while the justices consider the issue. And that stay was set to expire on Wednesday or yesterday. So that's where we stood at the last episode. Yeah. So what happened Wednesday? I mean, everyone was kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting to see what the Supreme Court was going to do here. Well, ha ha ha. Uh, A little anticlimactic. But Justice Alito extended the administrative stay, presumably to give the justices more time to sort out what it is that they're going to do. And that current stay is set to expire just before midnight on Friday. So, Lydia, don't make any plans. Oh, boy, it could be a late night on Friday. But uh, Kimberly, do you have any sort of idea of what it could mean that this stay was extended? Like, everyone's asking me, can we read the tea leaves here at all? What do you think? I I don't think so. I don't think we have any more information than what we had yesterday, except that it probably indicates that someone is writing something. Uh, but what that something is isn't really clear. So we could have a liberal justice who's writing a dissent. A conservative one could be doing the same. Or the court as a whole could be writing a per curiam opinion that sort of lays out their reasoning in this case. And that last option to me seems likely if the justices are going to toss the case um, based on technical grounds like standing. And it may be sort of a signal to lower courts, hey, knock it off here. I guess then there's the cynic in me that says that maybe the justices are doing this so they can put it in a Friday night news dump um, and decide a controversial issue without people paying attention. I don't think that will really pay off for them, though. All of that, though, is just conjecture. I will say, and now that I'm going to say this on the record, this is certainly not going to happen. um, But I find it really hard to imagine that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh are really happy that this case has come up to the court so quickly after Dobbs. And I wonder if they're looking for a way to sort of get rid of this case. Yeah, I think with Dobbs, you know, there was a hope that they would be, you know, kicking the abortion issue back to the states and not have to deal with it at all, you know, moving forward. And uh, yeah, any hope of that, you know, went out the window. So right, right. The Dobbs line that we're just returning this to the people's representatives really seems to be undermined by litigation like this. 
So, Lydia, one thing that we did actually get a resolution on on Wednesday was an opinion in the case of Rodney Reed, who is currently on death row for a crime he said he didn't commit. What exactly did the justices decide? Yeah, that's right, Kimberly. So the court sided with uh, Rodney Reed, um, who's on death row in Texas, in a dispute over the deadline for challenging uh, DNA testing of crime scene evidence um, after you're convicted. Uh, The court said that Reed hadn't waited too long to challenge the state's DNA testing procedures in federal court. Uh, It was a 6-3 decision, and the Supreme Court said the statute of limitations there starts when the state court litigation ends. Yeah, this is a really wild case, and I encourage listeners to kind of beef up on the facts on their own. Um, But they probably actually, many of them have already heard of Rodney Reed. Why is that, Lydia? Well, I bet uh, you and others uh, probably recognize uh, Reed's name here uh, because he had some star power behind his case. Uh, Our everybody's favorite reality TV starlet, Kim Kardashian and Rihanna both supported him. Uh, Reed, who is black, argues in this case that he was wrongly convicted and uh, sentenced to death by an all-white jury um, in 1998 for the murder of a white woman uh, with whom he claimed he had a secret affair. So at, at his trial, he requested that DNA testing be done on about like 40 pieces of evidence, uh, but most of it went untested. You know, the NAACP in this case uh, came out in support of him and said that the prosecution's theory was that this relationship that Mr. Reed had with this white woman couldn't have been consensual. And that really plays into the presumption of guilt um, that's assigned to black men when it comes to interracial sexual relationships throughout our nation's history. Right. So, Lydia, one thing um, I heard you say there was that this was a 6-3 decision. Did the court split along ideological lines here? Uh, Surprisingly, it did not. Uh, This was an interesting ruling. Uh, We had Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Chief Justice John Roberts all joined the court's liberal wing on this one. Um, The decision was actually written by Kavanaugh. You know, we had dissents uh, from Justice Thomas. Uh, He wrote separately to say that the court was wrong to hold that the district court had the power to hear Reed's case um, to begin with. And then Justice Alito also wrote a dissenting opinion, uh, which uh, Justice Gorsuch joined. And he said there's no explanation as to why Mr. Reed couldn't have filed his case within the two years after the criminal appeals court uh, refused his request to test more evidence. So it was an interesting divide. Right. I find it really interesting that um, we've had a few 6-3 rulings, some 5-4, some 7-2, and none of them so far have fallen along these um, purely ideological lines. And in fact, most have ended up with liberal justices in the majority. But, and this is a big but, I don't think that's going to hold as we move closer to the end of the term and start hearing some of the more consequential and controversial cases. I don't either. Um, but, you know, I really want to switch gears here and and let's talk about, you know, one more thing, um, you know, be, before we get to our interview. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Supreme Court ethics and the latest issues with Justice Clarence Thomas. So what's going on there? Right. So this is another one like the abortion pill case that we talked about, uh, David and I, last week. Um, so... Just a little recap, some ProPublica reporting um, happened about gifts and hospitality that Justice Thomas had accepted from Republican donor Harlan Crow. The outlet then followed up with additional story about a land deal between the two, um, which ended up with Harlan Crow being Justice Thomas's mother's landlord. 
the article brings up more questions about whether Justice Thomas is correctly um, reporting these issues on his financial disclosures. And it's gotten some more attention from Congress. So we'd already heard calls for the justice to resign. There were some suggestions that if he didn't, he should be impeached. And then we just heard that the Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on May 2nd on the Supreme Court and ethics. Chairman Durbin invited the chief justice to come and testify at the hearing. Uh, He also said he'd be happy to have any other justice instead. Uh, No word from the court yet if that's going to happen. One interesting note, Lydia, is that May 2nd is the anniversary of the Dobbs leak one year after. So coincidence? Probably not. And that's really where things stand right now. Impeachment seems very unlikely in the majority GOP House. And I think we need look no further than Justice Thomas's testimony during his Rocky confirmation to know there's no way that he is going to step down um, under President Biden. What's Clarence Thomas going to do? I'd rather die than withdraw. Uh, I guess the last thing to say that is that the Supreme Court and the Justice Thomas himself have been mum on the issue um, this week. And so for now, we wait. Well, that's something we'll certainly keep an eye on. You know, I'm really curious to see, you know, if they're going to subpoena any of the justices to come and testify before the committee or or if they'll, yeah, or if they'll come on their own. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, we'll stay up to date on it. But let's turn now to our preview of Tyler versus Hennepin County. It's a Fifth Amendment case that will be the last case heard during the 2022 term. So David Dearson is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation and part of the team that's representing Geraldine Tyler. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. So can you start by just telling our listeners how this case came about? Uh, so this case involves Geraldine Tyler. She's uh, she's now a 94-year-old woman living in Minnesota. Since 1999, she had owned a condo in Minneapolis, but beginning in the early 2010s, she began to fall behind on her property taxes. She generated a base tax debt of $2,300, and after the government tacked on statutory interest, penalties, and fees, that figure ballooned to $15,000. Hennepin County, Minnesota foreclosed on the home, They sold it to a third-party buyer for $40,000, and they kept every penny of the difference. So that is at least $25,000 in surplus equity, uh, which Ms. Tyler did not owe to the government, uh, but they nevertheless kept for their own budget. Now, David, this practice isn't unique to Hennepin County, right? So can you talk to us about how widespread it is? Yeah, so it's certainly not unique to Hennepin County. In fact, it's it's basically mandated by Minnesota's tax foreclosure statutes. And Minnesota's not alone either. There are about a dozen states plus the District of Columbia that allow this sort of thing to happen. Um, there are also a handful of states where, uh, as a matter of course, uh, or at least as a matter of law, the equity is is protected or there are safeguards designed to protect the equity, um, but nevertheless, many states have uh, have loopholes that that can result in a, a you know a similar outcome as we see here. But for the most part, you know the majority of states protect your equity in a tax foreclosure, just like your equity is protected in a mortgage foreclosure. And then in your brief, you guys talk about sort of the effects nationwide, and you say they're shocking. Could you sort of tell our listeners um, what you guys mean by that? 
Yeah, in these dozen or so jurisdictions that um, that employ these kind of practices, uh, you know, we at Pacific Legal Foundation we have a research arm, uh, and we have through through public records and you know various other methods, uh, we've we've published some research about the size and scope of this problem. Uh, we looked at all the jurisdictions where this happens. Of course, we couldn't capture everything, so we tended to look at um, you know the top five or the top ten most populous. Um, counties or, or taxing jurisdictions in those states. And what we found was that between 2014 and 2021, $860 million in equity was, uh, was taken from taxpayers. And on average, what homeowners lost in a tax foreclosure represents about 90% of the value of the home. So on average, the tax debt was only about 10% of the value of the home, um, but of course they take everything, and so nearly a you know at, at least as far as we found, that's nearly a billion dollars of of taxpayer money that's just been confiscated and converted to public funds. I just wanted to ask you. Um, it seems like if these are people who are already having trouble paying their tax bills, like are we talking about people who are already struggling financially? Like, can you talk about the type of people that kind of end up in the system here? Yeah, absolutely. So very frequently, um, you know, it, it's sort of the most vulnerable people in society. It's people who already are in a place where they're unable to keep up with their property taxes for, for what can be a few different reasons. People who have equity in their homes uh, don't let their homes go into foreclosure intentionally. A lot of times these people are elderly. Ms. Tyler herself is, is 94 years old or they're ill or they're experiencing an illness in their family. Um, they're on a fixed income and they're no longer able to keep up with the taxes. Uh, and sometimes, frankly, um, they just don't know about it because the notice attempts from government are insufficient. Um, that's not uh, an issue that's been raised in, in Ms. Tyler's case, but PLF has uh, plenty of other cases in which we do allege insufficient notice. Um, you know, for example, the the government sends notices only to the property itself, uh, even when they know that the uh, the record owner of the property has a residential mailing address somewhere else. And so those notices are only going to tenants, for example, or or it's going to a commercial property that doesn't even have a mailbox. Um, and they're written in, you know, oftentimes legalese that. Uh, a lay person would not be able to uh, decipher uh, and and figure out that oh if you know if I can't pay my taxes on time they can take everything from me, and with the notice issue I to me that's always one of the most pernicious aspects of this system because it's really not surprising when you think about the incentives that are created um, by allowing the government to take a windfall off of people's misfortunes tax offices will get a better deal if you default on your taxes than they will if you actually pay them. So their incentive is not to help you avoid foreclosure. It's it's actually to ensure that you go into foreclosure. And incentives are real and, and they're powerful. And unfortunately we see um, you know we see people responding to incentives and we see you know bare minimum or or less than minimum insufficient notice uh, pretty frequently. 
So I want to get into um, the legalese a, a bit here and sort of what is at issue before the justices. You, Your team is challenging this scheme based on two constitutional provisions, both the fifth and the eighth. So let's start with the fifth. Can you tell us a little bit about the taking clause argument that you guys are making? Yeah, certainly. So the, the idea there is that the equity you have in your home, and, and equity is just a, a fancy word for the property interest that you have in the market value of your home minus any encumbering liens. Um, and, you know, I sort of padded the answer there because I called it a property interest. And, you know, spoiler alert, that's the, the claim is that is that your interest in the value of your home is a property interest. Uh, and it's one that the government can't take without just compensation. Now, we're certainly not challenging the authority of the government to levy taxes. And we're not even challenging their authority to seize property in order to collect taxes. But when they do seize property, they're subject to a duty to seize no more than is necessary. And to the extent that can't be avoided, uh, then they have to pay back the, the remainder. They can't take more than they owe. Now, the trial court and the Eighth Circuit uh, both rejected that claim. Why did those courts say that this wasn't a taking? Yeah, they they employed what what we think is pretty circular reasoning. Um, they they basically said, well, we don't think that there is any property interest in the equity in your home, in the specific context of a tax foreclosure, because look at the tax foreclosure statutes. They say that the government gets to keep the equity, and hey, you know. Uh, we all know the the kind of hornbook um, slogan that uh, property rights are not created by the Constitution; they're protected by the Constitution, and their 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 source is in in other sources of law like state law. And so the courts below basically said, "Well, look, if state law defines property rights, it looks like the state law of Minnesota um, is written such that this is not a property right." Of course, we think that's pretty circular. Um, you know, it's pretty standard uh, takings principle that that legislatures can't convert private property into public property just by saying so. And it's also pretty rich when the equity in your property is undoubtedly uh, uncontroversially, uncontroversially a property interest in every single other context that you could imagine. So. Um, it's a you know it's something that has to be preserved in a mortgage foreclosure right when when the bank is the lender they can't get away with this stuff uh, it's it's property that can form the res of a trust it's property that gets divided in divorce proceedings uh, and even in some of Minnesota's other tax contexts like in in personal property tax um, if you know if they have to seize like a car. Uh, for failure to pay personal property, even there they the, the, the laws are written to give you back the surplus. So the fact that this stands alone, uh, you know, among the the only context in which your equity in your property is not treated as a property interest, you know, sort of makes one skeptical about the notion that, that that's really how the state is defining property interests. Hmm. And then let's move on to your Eighth Amendment argument. Um, what What's going on there? Yeah, so, I mean, to be clear, we think that this is 
this is a takings. It's a physical taking. It's not even a hard, it shouldn't even be a hard taking to establish, right? It's not like a Penn Central kind of regulatory taking. They're, they're physically appropriating the property and they're keeping more than they're owed. So we think the takings claim um, is is an excellent fit and and that's sort of the the flagship claim and what what we're hoping the court will rule on but in case the justices should disagree um, you know we also think that then then look if you don't think this was the taking of of property for a public purpose then gee it it sure looks a lot like an excessive fine as a, a punishment for failure to pay taxes yeah, I, mean, I wonder if um, you guys are emphasizing that the takings claim a bit based on the composition of the court and sort of the way that uh, this court might look at a takings claim versus this uh, more amorphous Eighth Amendment claim. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's partly um, the composition of the court. I would say also there's there's a lot more to work with in takings jurisprudence. Um, a lot of that is 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 pretty unestablished. And for example, you know, we're having fights over something that should be pretty basic, um, you know, which is the idea that just because this is not a criminal penalty um, doesn't mean that there's no application of the Eighth Amendment. You know, that's 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 the argument that the government is making. Uh, and you know, actually, before I started on this case, I had taken that as as, a, as an established piece of law, um, and and I, I still think it is. I think it's silly that we we still have to fight over this. But that's only to say that you know there, there's not much in the jurisprudence there um, to work with, and so more of it still needs to be hammered out. The other thing is, frankly, um, the takings has a better remedy. So I wanted to change directions a little bit. Um, Pacific Legal Foundation has had a really great run of getting cases in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think all of our listeners want to know, how are you guys doing this? Well, we have excellent <laughs> clients. Um, that's that's first, number one. Sure, sure. Everyone has excellent clients. Let's get down to the nitty gritty here, David. How are you guys doing this? Yeah, well, I mean, we, you know, the, for, for example, on this issue, this is an issue we started looking at about four or five years ago. Uh, and it's 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 a great issue. People are are interested in it. When we 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 found some amazing facts in some of these cases, like uh, in Raffaelli versus uh, Oakland County, which was a case that we won at the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, the the plaintiff there owed eight dollars and forty one cents in taxes. That was the total debt. Uh, we like to say it's about the price of a Chipotle burrito, and he lost his whole home over that amount. Um, the, the government sold it for about 25K. Uh, so when you have, when you're able to find, I think, such shocking fact patterns, that really uh, created a lot of national interest in this issue where there hadn't been much. Um, and, you know, we started planting the seeds. We started bringing cases um, in federal courts in different circuits, and we were able to generate a circuit split um, pretty quickly. So we, you know, um, we won on Michigan state law and we won um, in a Michigan case in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, Hall versus Meisner. Uh, and then in, in Tyler, as you know, we lost in the Eighth Circuit. And just that, you know, that first split um, was enough to interest the court. You know, I think that combined with how outrageous the issue is. 
I wanted to ask you real quick about that uh, circuit split that you mentioned. You did get that really um, quickly. I mean, it was, you know, within six weeks of each other, as the uh, Hennepin County points out in their brief. And so I'm wondering, you know, Hennepin County is arguing that, hey, Supreme Court, you should give the states longer, you know, to let this issue percolate and let more circuits weigh in. And because this is so new and so young, like, you know, just give it some more time. And I'm wondering if you think that that could hurt your case here. And if some of the justices might, you know, that might be an argument that they go, yeah, this is really too early for us to to weigh in here. You know, I don't think so. It's really, um, it's not, uh, it's not that young of an issue. I mean, first of all, you know, we, we cite extensively in our brief to, you know, lots of those old jurists from from centuries ago we cite to blackstone and to thomas cooley who talk about this kind of thing and they say for example thomas cooley says uh, in his treatise on taxation he doesn't know of a of a a single jurisdiction um that does this kind of thing and that uh, on the contrary when property is seized for um the underpayment of taxes the government takes it with a uh, subject to a a duty to render back what, what what's called the overplus, basically the, the surplus equity. Even in Minnesota, there's a case um, from the 1880s um, that, that, that also rules that, that this sort of thing uh, violates the law of Minnesota. And that's, you know, over 100 years ago. Of course, the courts below said, well, maybe it did then, but, you know, the, that's been abrogated by statute. Um, but it's, it's really not that young of an issue. And there have been plenty of state Supreme Courts um, to have looked at it. You know, the truth is it's not one of those issues where the state law and the federal law should have much um, breathing room between them, you know. And that's it's partly because of just the history of the way that um, property rights and equity have evolved. It was, um, you know, universal in this country that you have a property interest in 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 the equity in your home. And so I don't think it's it's new. I think what's New is that, um, you know, some, somewhere in the 20th century, governments started to get the idea that they could do this. They largely went unchallenged. And all that's new is that, you know, they're finally being taken a task for it. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this case. And um, we look forward to um, hearing it argued. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. Well, as Lydia mentioned at the top of the episode, the justices will take the bench for their final week of arguments next week. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com, especially on Friday night. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.